You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You have tuned in into 3CR's program, Behind Closed Doors. This program explores all topics related to sex work. We give sex workers and allies a comfortable space to share their experiences. We also appreciate questions from the general public. Behind Closed Doors aim to uncover what the sex industry is really like. Our program exists to bridge the gaps. Please be mindful this program is not suitable for little years as there may also be explicit language use. Please connect with us on Twitter at bcd3cr or email us at bcd3cr at gmail.com. Hi and welcome to Behind Closed Doors on 3CR 855 AM and Digital Radio. I'm one of your hosts today, I'm Dean Lim and I've also got Kitty Galore with me. Hi Kitty. Hi Dean. And in the studio via the internets, we have Maggie McNeil. Now Maggie's actually been involved in this incredible documentary that is highly recommended and everyone should take a look at this. It's called The War on Whores, came out last year in 2019. It's a feature-length documentary that's also available on Vimeo. We will provide a link in our Twitter handle, which is at BCD3CR. You definitely have to check it out. So Maggie is an activist. She is a sex worker, a writer. We need more people like Maggie. Welcome to Behind Closed Doors, Maggie McNeil. Thank you, Dean. Well, Maggie, you're connecting with us all the way from Seattle. What time is it there? It is a little after five in the afternoon here. Right, and it's very early in the morning for us. Yes, but I'm, in, I'm on the previous day. <laughs> I'm still on Wednesday and you're on Thursday. Oh, yes. So, Maggie, you've done so much and in being involved in this particular documentary. So I'm going to pass it over to Kitty to do part one of our interview. So, Maggie, I'd love to hear from you about what it's like being a sex worker in America. Obviously, the, the basics are the same anywhere. But the, the difference, of course, in the United States is because since it's criminalized here, we have a lot more, a lot more of our security uh, procedures are dedicated toward screening out cops. Um, we're, we're more worried about cops than we are about bad clients here. Uh, I mean, obviously we're still, you know, bad clients are still a concern, but not as much as, as cops. And, and so that, um, back in the old days when I used to have an escort service, um, Things were a little different back then because then they would go after the girls and leave the services basically alone for the most part. Nowadays, of course, it's reversed. Now they, they try to go more after services. Um, and similar to what we see in, in the UK and in a lot of uh, European places where they're looking to um, slam sex workers with pimping charges and such. So we see a lot more of that here than we did when I first started working about 20 years ago. That's so interesting because, I mean, oftentimes you see police as a organization that's trying to protect people, but instead, you know, when it comes to sex work, it's the reverse. And it's almost like they are entrapping sex workers just for the hell of it. There's no protection there, really. Who are oh, no, they protecting? No, none whatsoever. They just, and it's, it's, um, it's a big game. As I talk about in the movie, uh, the one time I myself was arrested, 
back in 2005, I mean, obviously there was only one person in the room at first, but then he run, ran to the door, opened the door, and 15 cops file in. 15 cops. For what? For one middle-aged 132-pound woman? It, it's absurd. Mm -hmm. It was for fun for them. They, they thought it was just a, a funny, you know, I don't know. They get their kicks off of it, I suppose. I'm just wondering what fuels and drives this type of behavior and what sort of excuse they're using to make these type of actions, which are not acceptable. Well, it used to be, you know, when I first started working, of course, they were still working with the, uh, at, at that time, with the sex workers as criminal model. And then in the early part of the century, so when, when I had been working just a few years, we started seeing more and more and more and more, of course, of the sex trafficking narratives. Since about, I guess about 2009, 2010 in the U.S., that's become the dominant narrative here now. And it's, it's really quite funny. When I'm doing my blog, sometimes I notice that you have these older police spokesmen who aren't always with the program. And sometimes you hear like a mixture of the whore as criminal and whore as victim in the same speech, which is really very peculiar. And contradictory. Um, and contradictory, right? And they're not, as, they're not as, as polished, I suppose, as some of the big city um, departments where they won't deviate from the narrative. But those places, I think, have full-time spokesmen. Now, I know Dean has worked in America as well. I'm just curious to find out that as a gay male sex worker, did you have any similar experiences as Maggie? Well, I was lucky enough to be part of a, a chat group and a lot of the guys, it was an American-based chat group, and a lot of the guys would sort of would give advice to each other and, and how to go about our business. The, the underlying message, I guess, was similar all across America in that we had to be careful of police entrapment. So there were a couple of times, I, I worked in New York City, and there were a couple of times when I did ask clients, you know, are you a cop? I know that's a flimsy question to ask because they could easily say, no, I'm not. And then turn around and, you know, bam, I'm in jail. But, that's um, similar to what happened to Maggie, right? Uh, well, I didn't, I did, I never did ask if there were cops because I knew that, you know, they can lie. They can say whatever they like. But the, um, the guy that, that entrapped me didn't set off my alarm bells at all. He was very, very good at, at the, the tricking part. He just was very, very calm and very, he didn't ask any funny questions when he talked to him on the phone. It was just basically, hey, can you describe yourself? I did. He said, oh, you sound great. What time can you be here? I told him. He goes, okay, I see you then. No leading questions, nothing peculiar. At the moment he let in the, the other cops, I was literally giving him a back rub and talking about the weather. This was October and it was New Orleans. And of course it was still quite warm because in New Orleans, well, of course in Australia it is warm in, in October, isn't it? But <laughs> in most of North America, it's chilly in October and it, it's not in New Orleans. So but that's what we were talking about. And all of a sudden, the cops come in. When my lawyer got the police report later, of course, he had filled it in with all sorts of nonsense about what supposedly had gone on, and none of it which actually happened. Uh, but it was all done, obviously, just, it was just tinned. They probably just put the same thing on every, every report. Yeah. I mean, the first question that comes to mind is, first of all, what are we doing wrong? Yes, sex work is currently illegal in the United States. However, sometimes we need to ask, what is the ethics 
below all of this. And we should always choose ethics over laws. And, you know, that is exactly what your documentary is reflecting, is that the laws are actually unethical and they discriminate against a job sector where you have sex workers who are providing a very safe and ethical service. You do, but of course, Kitty, the, um, in the United States, there is a, a very strong narrative, uh, especially from the prohibitionists, but even just from the regular cops and such, that sex work is not work. They refuse to accept and recognize sex workers as, as being workers. They refuse to accept the sex work as work. They refuse to even accept the idea that sex is something um, natural and, and normal and healthy. That, that's not, not even, I've said before, there's a, a view in the US that sex is more akin to watching television than it is to sleeping. In other words, that it's something you, you could go without if you wanted to. You don't need that, is the narrative in the United States about sex. And so therefore, um, if you bring up something like, well, you know, what's a lonely person uh, supposed to do if he wants sex? Basically, the, the, the response is, it doesn't matter. You know, people in the United States, basically the narrative is that people are supposed to just be able to go without sex forever if they want to. And, and it should be <laughs> yes. perfectly fine and no problem. I think it's a very traditional way of thinking. And it probably stems from uh, the strong religious groups who just deny all sexuality as part of being naturally human. I'm just curious what you think of that, Dean. The United States is an incredible country of contradictions. There's the freedom to do whatever you want, but there's a huge but. And there's such a moral panic and moral outrage to things. And yet the right to bear arms and to you know, have a gun outweighs everything else versus sexual freedoms between consenting adults. Just a quick question. What made you want to travel all the way to America to work there? Partly it was a holiday. Partly was also to visit a friend of mine who lives in New York. And, you know, so I had an opportunity to travel, to stay there for an extended period of time. And it was, it was a great time, you know, terrific clients. I've made a lot of good friends in the States. Again, it's a, it's a country of contradictions. So when you watch Maggie's documentary, did you find that your experiences were so different and did that open you to a whole new perspective of sex work in America? I, I kind of knew what to expect in that I, I had friends in the States who told me, you know, who warned me what, what to do and what not to do, as well as belonging to a chat group where the guys would, we'd all advise each other of what's going on in the different States and cities. So I was, I kind of went in with a very, um, with my eyes open. I mean, I, I guess that's the way I conduct myself in general with, with my work in that I, I, I treat it like work. It's a business. And, you know, the, the Dean Lim is a brand and that's how I conducted myself. So I went in pretty organized with what I was doing, spent some time there. And then it was a quite a good experience for me because I knew what to expect beforehand. I didn't go in there naively. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, it sounds like you had really good supports. However, I imagine that, you know, if you're working full time in America as a sex worker, life 
would be really different as Maggie has shared with us. Is there some advice you can give to future travelers? I think Dean has, has hit the nail on the proverbial head. What my advice would be for any Australian sex worker who wanted to travel to the U.S. would be get in touch with a good circle of American sex workers who can give you the lay of the land, who can help you to establish yourself, who can give you references. And all these things are important. References, I think, in the United States are especially important. I mean, even more so than elsewhere, because it's much harder for a cop to get uh, a fake reference than it is for him to do all the other things he might do to track. I mean, obviously it's not impossible, but it's more difficult. And one of the things that we're very fortunate in Seattle is I've worked in three different uh, cities in the United States, four actually, cities in the United States, uh, New Orleans, Dallas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then Seattle. And Seattle has the absolutely best sex worker circle, sex worker culture of any city in the United States that I've seen or talked to people. We just are very, very tight circle there. There's a lot of support. There's a lot of, of interaction between the ladies. When a new person starts, she's able to get advice from the others and get references. It's really good to have that. And I think even though Seattle does have that more than most cities, I would suspect that you would be able to get into some kind of a circle in, in almost any city uh, of, of any size, at least. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what we've all done in the last you know, several years with the dominance of internet and how you know, a lot of the work is now shifted online. So we have access to social media from where I'm coming from would be classified as a private worker, regardless of your, your gender. There are a lot of ways that we can all connect via social media. People are different groups and accessing groups and information. Now that's one way we can share information and build a community a virtual community in order to support each other. Well, I think it sounds like the community Maggie's built or that she's also a part of in America sounds really close and tight-knit, very encouraging and supportive and uplifting. And that's something I find that Australia still is lacking. Like, yes, there are good community groups. From what I'm hearing Maggie describe her groups, it just sounds like a whole nother level where type of uh, support and encouragement that we should be seeing because we should never see sex workers or other sex workers as competition. We should all see ourselves as colleagues who work together and who are there to support each other. Oh, I would absolutely agree with that, Kitty. I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, obviously there are exceptions to every rule. There are some Seattle ladies who won't give references, who don't want to associate with everybody else, but it's rare. At the end of summer every year, we have a big barbecue. There's usually about 30 or 40 sex workers there. You know, we socialize together. We have parties. We have, you know, uh, most of my social circle in Seattle are all sex workers, uh, even a few clients that, you know, that are, that are like very, very, very regular and that have seen everybody and that are known to be generous, that sort of a thing. So it's, it's a pretty amazing uh, situation. It's, it's one of the reasons that I chose to move to Seattle when, when I was kind of looking, I was kind of auditioning. Um, when I was on tour for my first book, I was kind of auditioning a new city to, to work in and, uh, and Seattle won because <laughs> it was so amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your personal experiences with regards to working as a sex worker in America. When we come back after a short break, Dean's going to continue to interview Maggie McNeil about the documentary and her book as well. You're listening to Behind Closed Doors on 3CR 
855am and on digital. This is JP Sachs featuring Julia Michaels, If the World Was Ending. Tune into the station that gives voices to sex workers. Subscribe to 3CR. I was distracted and in traffic I didn't feel it when the earthquake happened But it really got me thinking Were you out drinking? Were you in the living room chilling, watching television? It's been a year now Think I figured out how How to let you go and let communication die out I know, you know, we know You weren't down for forever and it's fine I know, you know, we know We weren't meant for each other and it's fine But if the world was ending, you'd come over, right? You'd come over and you'd stay the night Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? The sky'd be falling and I'd hold you tight And there wouldn't be a reason why We would even have to say goodbye If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? Right? If the world was ending, you would come over, right? Right? I tried to imagine your reaction It didn't scare me when the earthquake happened But it really got me thinking The night we went drinking Stumbled in the house and didn't make it past the kitchen Oh, it's been a year now Think I figured out how How to think about you without it ripping my heart out And I know you know We know you weren't down for forever and it's fine I know you know But if the world was ending, you'd come over, right? you come over and you stay the night Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? Sky be falling while I hold you tight No, there wouldn't be a reason why We would even have to say goodbye If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? Come over right, you come over, you come over, you come over right. Mm. I know, you know, we know you went down for forever and it's fine. I know, you know, we know we weren't meant for each other and it's fine. But if the world was ending, you come over right. Come over and you'd stay the night Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant If the world was ending, you'd come over right The sky'd be falling while I hold you tight No, there wouldn't be a reason why We would even have to say goodbye If the world was ending You'd come over right You come over, you come over, you come over right Hi everyone and welcome to Behind Closed Doors on 3CR 855 AM and Digital Radio. I'm Dean and I've been joined today with Kitty and we have a very special guest. It's Maggie McNeil and we've been chatting to Maggie about her involvement with a documentary 
called The War on Whores. Maggie, it's been such an eye-opening documentary. How did you get involved with it? In 2015, uh, I got an email from Paul Johnson, who's the producer and director of the, of the documentary. He had uh, encountered me online and, you know, seeing my work. He just thought I was just the cat's meow. And he thought of the idea of doing a documentary. And so he emailed me about it and said, hey, can we get together? Can we have coffee together? And I'll tell you about my idea for this documentary. So I was obviously a little bit skeptical. So we, we went and met probably about two in the afternoon, something like that. And we were still talking when it got dark. And so it was, it, it didn't take him long to convince me. He was a, um, he's a very open person and you can just very sincere and his sincerity comes through. He had me convinced in, in no time. Like, I mean, any, any doubts I have just washed away. And we started working then within, I guess within a few months, he was still finishing up uh, a previous documentary project at the time. And so I guess we started around April or May, something like that, of, of 16, uh, in, in filming it. And it took all together uh, almost three years. Um, wow. The project, we finished up, yeah, we finished up in like January, I think, of last year, um, January, February. And then we released in early March. I didn't think it took three years to make that documentary. It just seemed like it flowed so naturally. Well, I think uh, what most of the reason it took so long was was simply that uh, Paul was financing it out of his own pocket, and so he could he had to fit it in between uh, paying gigs, you know his his work as a reporter and such, and so he could only do we would you know get together and film for a day or so, and then he would work and process that, and then a few weeks later he'd contact me back and say, hey, can we get together again and do another segment? So it was that sort of a thing. It wasn't like a constant working for three years. It was more sporadic. I'm curious, were the sex workers who appeared on the documentary also compensated for their time? No, nobody was compensated for their time, actually. It was all volunteer. I'm actually not being paid for my writing. For my, I mean, for my, excuse me, for my appearance in the documentary, it's considered unethical in the United States to, to pay people for appearing in a, in a documentary. So I was actually only paid, my, my part ownership of the movie comes from my writing of the, you know, working on the, the storyboards, that sort of thing. That's what I'm being paid for. Which is really interesting. I mean, a lot of advocacy work isn't funded. And I guess that's why the work that Maggie's doing in the United States is really important. Thank you for doing it, Maggie. Oh, you're very, very welcome. And I am really fortunate in that I have a fairly large group of patrons, readers, and, and viewers of my work, and even some clients who give me donations because they know that my work is important and they'll send me these emails and say, hey, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing and here's a little gift and I wish I could give you more. So it's, it's not enough, you know, all these folks giving me money. It's not enough to live on. It's a nice supplement. It helps psychologically, I feel. You know, you, when people, I mean, it's the same as being a sex worker, right? When somebody pays you for something, they really feel as though they appreciate it, uh, you know, more than just expecting it for free. Oh, yes. You know, so getting those donations makes me feel as though, no, these people really do appreciate what I'm doing. It's not just an empty platitude. Oh, we appreciate you. No, they're they're putting their money where their mouth is. And, And that really helps me psychologically. 
I think it's really wonderful when, as you say, people put their money where their mouth is. Um, here in Australia, the reason why I raised this I you know, this discussion about remuneration is because a lot of sex workers in the space of advocacy, they are always constantly pushing for sex workers to be paid for their time to appear on the media rather than for their time to provide advice and feedback, just be pro bono work. But I guess that's just the case with all types of pro bono work and all types of advocacy. It, it tends to have to come from the heart. Yes. Yes, I would, I would say that's true. The, the sex workers make money. The advocacy is not. Mm. Yeah, it's like we've gone back quite a few hundred years where we're looking for patrons of the arts and to be subsidised. Yes, yes, I would, I would say that's true. And in fact, I said that uh, to a, a gentleman who, who used to give me quite a lot of money. Um, he, he got into a position where his, uh, his mother got sick and so he started having to spend more on, on that. But he, he told me once that he felt, um, he felt bad because he was not able to, to do uh, the kind of activism I was doing. And I said, no, no. I said, you're, you're the Medici's to my Leonardo. <laughs> I can't, I can't <laughs> do this without support. I said, so, you know, what you're doing is super important, you know, and I, I think that helped him to, to feel a little better about it. Well, Maggie, time is just flying and we're obviously going to need a part two with you. So we'll wrap it up today, but we'll hope to have you again for our show next week. Thanks again, Maggie. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Behind Closed Doors on Australia's only sex worker radio show on 3CR 855 AM and digital radio. Tune in to the station that gives voices to sex workers. Subscribe to 3CR. We at Behind Closed Doors, Kitty Galore, Dean Lim, Sassy Sin, want to encourage all of you to wear your mask and not forget it as you head outside to do any of the four things that are allowed. Think of masks like the new condom. We are wearing them to protect each other and to keep each other safe. It shows that you respect yourself and everyone around you. If you don't want to wear any mask, that's fine. $200. breathe in and out you're listening to 3cr label lady marmalade